I want us to become brothers again like we used to be, and for us to find ourselves and bond with each other. Can we agree to that? Opinions vary. Welcome to Three Brothers Filmcast, a monthly roundtable podcast where the brothers behind Three Brothers Film discuss a chosen movie, as well as any broader topics in film culture. We just want to take a moment off the top to thank everyone for listening these past few months and for joining our conversation on film and film culture. If you've enjoyed our discussions, please consider leaving a rating or review or mentioning us to your family and friends. Reviews help new listeners find us and help us carve out a niche for real, substantive conversations about movies. I'm Aaron Bergstrom, and I'm here with my brothers. Anders. And Anton. And my last name is the same as my brother's. And this week, we're talking about Chloe Zhao's Nomadland, the presumptive Oscar frontrunner for the 2021 Oscars. Considering that our first episode covered David Fincher's Mank, another Best Picture nominee, it's only fitting that we continue the conversation about another Oscar favorite and the Best Picture nominees more generally. But before we widen our focus to the larger field, here's our roundtable discussion on Chloe Zhao's Nomadland. Okay, ramblers, let's get rambling. You are one of those lucky people that can travel anywhere. Yes, ma'am, I know. And they sometimes call you nomads. My mom says that you're homeless. Is that true? No, I'm not homeless. I'm just houseless. Not the same thing, right? No. My husband worked at the USG mine in Empire. I was a substitute teacher. It is a tough time right now. You may want to consider early retirement. I need work. I like work. The past 14 months have changed life as we know it. Our old, comfortable ways of living have been thrown into permanent disarray. The world of movies have changed as well. Theater chains like the Arclight have gone under and distribution model has permanently tilted in the favor of Netflix, Disney, Amazon, and the other streaming giants. So perhaps it's appropriate in such a tumultuous year for the Oscar frontrunner to be a film up at the last global crisis of the 21st century, The Great Recession of 2008. The third feature film by Chinese filmmaker Chloe Zhao, Nomadland examines the lives of individuals left in the wake of that recession. Set in 2011 and 2012, the film follows Fern, played by Frances McDormand, who loses her job and her home in a small town in Nevada, only to buy a camper van and hit the open road as a permanent nomad. She falls in with other self-proclaimed nomads, and we watch her on her journey across the American West, picking up part-time gigs at Badlands National Park or working seasonally in an Amazon warehouse. Adapting Jessica Bruder's nonfiction book from 2017, which is also called Nomadland, and drawing from techniques she used in her previous features, Songs My Brother Taught Me from 2015 and The Rider from 2018, Chloe Zhao blends documentary and fictional narrative elements to create a portrait of contemporary America. In Nomadland, the only professional actors are Francis McDormand and David Stathern, while everyone else is either bit players, non-professionals, or individuals mentioned in Bruder's book who play versions of themselves. The incorporation of non-professional actors in real locations, such as trailer parks or in an Amazon warehouse, creates a verisimilitude for the film, which attempts to break down the barriers between story and the everyday world of the viewer. At the same time, Zhao imbues these ordinary visions of American life with considerable beauty. Working with cinematographer Joshua James Richards, who also shot her previous films and is her common-law spouse in real life, Zhao emphasizes the stark beauty of the landscape in steady cam wide shots. She often shoots scenes at the golden hour, with the fading light of the sun serving as the backlight to the characters. 
It creates a juxtaposition between the modesty of the character's circumstances and the majesty of the wild, showing how there is no lack of beauty in the seemingly mundane reality of the characters' lives. In many ways, it's an approach borrowed from Terence Malick, who Zhao has openly admitted is a big influence on her. But the approach is more formal than thematic. Nomadland is beautiful, but it is not transcendent like Malick's films. It is fixated on the here and now and the simple dignities of the people in the film, many of them presenting stories of their own unvarnished lives. The sophistication of Zhao's visual approach may overshadow the narrative simplicity of the work at its core. Because unlike her previous film, The Rider, which captured essential dramatic truths in its story of a Native American rodeo rider who has to give up the life of the rodeo, Nomadland is more anthropological than dramatic. It may star Frances McDormand, but it is not a prestige drama of the typical Oscar variety. But does it need to be? Maybe that's how we should start this whole round table off. Now, I don't think either of you would disagree that Nomadland is beautiful, but is there more to the film than its golden hour vistas? and dignified look at the lives of vagrants, nomads, and precarious workers across the American West. Is it great drama, or simply beautiful documentation of a life that grows more common each day? What do you think, Anders? I want to start by saying there's two things that you mentioned about the film that I think are important to note. One is the question of documentation, because this is based on a nonfiction book, and like in The Rider, Zhao is incorporating real people playing versions of themselves there's there is it does play almost as a documentary aspect and the other term that i wanted to touch on is that term used anthropological that anthropological lens this idea that we're getting not an undramatized version of life or like an objective view of things and we're and she's just allowing these people to speak and tell their stories that there's something about that to the film as well and i think that explains a great deal of the film's not that there isn't any dramatic interest per se but the lack of of tension stakes in the film and and to me maybe that sums up why on a sort of narrative structural level i'm not sure the film 100 percent worked for me i liked a lot of it i'm a sucker for beautiful western landscapes you know grew up in western canada i love the badlands i love you know, those areas of the United States, I think they, there's a sublime nature about that. And we might want to touch on that and how that might be at odds in some ways with the, uh, the anthropological documentary aspects of the film, which I think were really, really strong in the writer. And to me, played a little less well here. And maybe that's because the, the integration of Fern's story, the Frances McDormand character who's fictionalized, I have a lot of questions about that story and what the work that story is doing structurally and thematically in the film and how that contrasts with, as you say, presenting the, the sort of simple, dignified stories of these other nomads. What about you, Anton? I found the beginning of the film to be more focused on the anthropological side, and I found as Nomad Land goes on, it gets more interested in Fern and Dave's story and Fern and her sister. And for me, like you guys have mentioned um, Terrence Malick. You've talked about her other films that uh, Zhao's made. But I, I found I found a reference point to be kind of, I don't think intentionally, but it reminded me a bit of the Reese Witherspoon movie Wild. It actually reminded me of that too. <laughs> it did. <laughs> I haven't seen it. Where you have a trouble, you know, like you have a woman who goes off into nature into the wild to sort of find herself and that is definitely more um it's more romantic and idealized 
sentimentalized in the Reese Witherspoon movie. But I was almost surprised by how much this movie became to... For me, it, it begins to sort of almost romanticize Fern's story and Fern's life and the lifestyle she's choosing. And it gets less interested in, say, um, this as a document of post-recession life, deindustrialization. You know, whereas the beginning, the focus on the Amazon factory, things like that, it it had a different interest for me. And it's not that the film necessarily got worse, but I do think that documentarian side, that anthropological side, diminishes as it continues. I agree. And I think that the contrast of those two things ends up meaning that the film, to me, is a little bit thematically muddled. I would agree. Like, afterwards, I'm not sure what exactly the film's saying. I think I think it's more positive towards Fern and nomadism than I uh, might have suspected at the start. But the other thing is I, I'm really unclear on actually what the film's saying about deindustrialization and in even that aspect and how that connects between nomadism and this sort of um, precarious work world and a world where, you know, uh, the Rust Belt's hollowed out. Like, what's the connection between nomadism and that? Yeah, it, there's especially, there's a few, well, we can touch on a few key phrases. There's uh, situations in, especially at the end, as she reconnects with her sister, and then when she reconnects with uh, the RV life guru, Bob Wells, uh, toward the end, and he shares the story uh, of how he lost his his son right is is bob wells real yeah he's a real okay. guy and he's playing him everybody in the film is basically playing a version of themselves which makes it really kind of interesting in that sense because i do think that that does give some weight to the idea that this is an anthropological documentary look at certain people hmm. and yet and yet it's still like this hollywood actress coming in here and i know francis mcdormand isn't you know reese witherspoon even but there's still that that kind of tension there, right? I, I just want to point out, like her sister says, for instance, that you know, even th- even through other conflicts, she says that you know, you're braver and more honest than everyone else. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's the question: is that what the film is saying the nomads are? But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe do, does a documentary or an anthropological look have to have a point of view, or does it inevitably have a point of view? This is this is an interesting question. Why don't you move in with us? I can't live here. I can't live in this room. I can't sleep in this bed. Thank you, but I can't. No, we're not as interesting as the people you meet out there. That's not what I'm talking about. No, that's what it is. It's always what's out there that's more interesting. You left home as soon as you could. You married Beau after just knowing him a few months. And then you moved to the middle of nowhere with him. And then even after Beau passed away, you still stayed an empire. I just didn't get it. I mean, you could have left. Yeah. See, that's why I can't come here. I never said this to you before, and maybe I should have. You know, when you were growing up, you were eccentric to other people. You maybe seemed weird, but it was, it was just because you were braver and more honest than everybody else. Two points, kind of jumping off things that both of you said. And a comment you made earlier, Anders, where you're like, the film kind of has, it lacks stakes, it lacks conflict, and kind of a, in, a, in a simplified, normal, like, dramatic setup. And at the same time, Anton, you said that 
the earlier scenes, the scenes when she's more embedded in this nomad community, seem to have a less conventional touch to them. They're a little more anthropological and they're a little, um, I think they breathe easier because she's allowing the real to inform the drama. And we get more of those interview type scenes. Yeah, where it's just a conversation. Where a person's just talking about the lifestyle. The thing here is that I think these two points are actually connected in that the film has a character who thrives off of isolation so that whenever she is outside of this community of nomads, of real people, of people playing themselves, you no longer have any vestiges left of the like documentarian anthropological approach. You don't have any of that interesting tension that exists with people recreating their own lives on film. And the way that that makes me think of is with her past film, The Rider, which had a lot of Abbas Kiarostami's style of like, I'm going to make people recreate their own lives, but I'm going to change it in really profound ways. But because they are living it out themselves, it becomes an act of almost therapeutic drama. So specifically something like Close Up, right? Like Close Up is going over a real case, but the actual setups in the film are completely dramatized and Kiarostami is mixing things. And that tension that exists between a performer repeating something that's real in a fake narrative creates this weird limbo space, right? Which Kiristami does all the time, and I think the writer does really well. But this film, because Frances McDormand, Frances McDormand's not playing, she's not being herself. She's being Fern, who is really just a a gateway for us to experience these other people. So whenever those other people fall out and it's just her and David Stathairn or her alone, the movie's not like unsatisfying. It's just empty in a way that it's not in those other moments because you don't have the actual tension that is created of her interacting with real life and the weird changes and things that come out of that. But then you also have it falling back on this very conventional woman determining the world for herself and that being aligned with nature in a thematic sense that is similar to something like Wild or even to something like Into the Wild. Mm. I think that's an interesting comparison. What do you think? So I'm trying to figure out what I see as an illusion at the end of the film and maybe you'll see it too and then what that means in regards of what we've talked about. So speaking of another genre, right, it's engaging in, it's a, a modern day Western. I think the ending has an allusion to the searchers, um, the framing of her leaving her old home. Mm-hmm. We get um, like the ending of the searchers where you get like the doorway, the doorway, and you see the landscape through the doorway. Um, it's also at the end of the film, right? It's she's come back to where she started before the film began, unlike in the searchers, but in in the searchers for Ethan Edwards that means that he's no longer needed he you know he he exits the family home homestead um, he's he's found the child and you know it's 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 its own version of the walking off into the sunset and he's exiting and i'm not under i'm not sure i'm confident that this is an illusion but i'm not sure what the meaning of this is and how does this bear on the rest of the film then Especially because the idea of the nomads is that there is no real walking off into the sunset because as, as Bob Wells says, you know, it's like, we'll see you down the road. There's mm. always the one more meeting, right? Yeah. This idea of eternal wandering. One of the things I love most about this life is that there's no final goodbye. You know, I've met hundreds of people out here and I don't ever say a final goodbye. I always just say, I'll, I'll see you down the road. And I do. And uh, whether it's a month or a year or sometimes years, I see them again. And I can look down the road and I can be certain in my heart that I'll see my son again. You'll see Bo again. And you can remember your lives together then.
But you're, the film clearly makes uh, takes, and this is something which I think is really an interesting tension in the film structurally between this sort of desire to uh, impose some kind of thematic uh, narrative thread on things um, and the anthropological sense of taking people at their face at value in a sense, like when they say things, right? Like, can you give me an example of that? Cause I'm not entirely clear what you mean by that. So like, for example, um, you know, characters in the film will say, I like this lifestyle. I chose this lifestyle. And then in other situations, they'll say things like, you know, I was thrown into it when, you know, someone in my family died or I lost my house or these kind of things. And it's like, mm-hmm. there's, there's mm-hmm. an, there's an underlying tension there between that, that the film never interrogates, which is, or, but maybe, maybe it's trying to say that the two things can be true. And I, I do tend to come down on that line a little bit that like people are neither entirely victims of circumstance or entirely without agency of any kind. And I think that's what the film is trying to say. But then it aligns Fern with this sort of American tradition of the West. Like literally her sister says at the barbecue, I think yep. Fern's part of, you know, in a great American tradition. It's great. And I think in a lot of the critical takes of the film i'm like they're saying the exact same thing this sister the, the sister's saying and i'm like <laughs> yeah like and those are the parts i found you know the most on the nose the most um reminiscent of a movie like wild yeah i don't think Zhao is the strongest dramatist i don't think she's particularly great at, at creating things from whole cloth because just based off this work which it's a film that i think is like very beautiful and has lots of things i like where it's it's dealing with issues of our recent past which are inform our present and it's kind of trying to uh, deal with the complexities and conflicts that haven't really been resolved yet in how we live right now in specifically the west but it doesn't have that kind of wholesale strength which the writer has front to back but because with the writer she's dealing entirely with people playing themselves there's no non-act there's there's no professional actors in that movie brady Jandro is playing a version of himself and the movie never drops that it never tries to inject something else even if the the setup of him is replaying you know things from a few years earlier in his life and and kind of didn't work out that exact way it just makes me think that her strengths as a filmmaker lie in digging into those contradictions and kind of bringing people to the fore and letting them kind of reveal themselves on screen in a way that a good documentarian does you know a good documentary coaxes the subject into revealing themselves into feeling comfortable so that they actually forget they're on camera and they can reveal something even if it's even if it's Mm -hmm. a show and they're manufacturing themselves they're revealing something in that manufacturing so there's truth there i agree with you that uh i found the film more engaging on in some of its more documentary aspects, not just the bits like the interviews with Linda May and Swanky and characters like that, who, who kind of breaks my heart, you know, Swanky. like these people. <laughs> um, but even like one of the things I did find refreshing with the film, and maybe that's also why I found the film's reticence to like actually say anything about it was actually that it's very rare to get images of people working regular jobs in movies and paying attention to the the actual physical labor of things. Like when she's working at the beet, sugar beet fact, you know, uh, factory, or, you know, even working at grill. Yeah, I didn't even know what those were. I was like, are those potatoes? Sugar beets, okay. And, and you know, early in the film she says, I like to work. And there, so there's like, there's these images of people working that I really I really found interesting. At the On the other hand, I think, yeah, the, the desire to be a documentarian or like the fly on the wall means it ends up not wanting to to push any of the tensions between 
like particularly that that central tension that I identify in the film between uh, are you the victim of a circumstance of a crumbling economy, which is only obliquely part of the film, um, versus the character's choice and her desire for uh, solitude and dealing with the grief of both the loss of her husband, but also the loss of a life and a home and things mm-hmm. like that, right? Which is interesting. So I don't know. What do you guys think that some of that has to do with Zhao's desire to uh, not editorialize as a non-American? I don't know. She's been in America long enough where she's, like, she's lived there for 20 years. So she is an American and she isn't. Like, she's still technically a Chinese national, I believe. Since late high school and all through and all through film school at, at the Tisch School of Arts and everything, like, she's clearly embedded herself enough so that it she sees it as her own culture enough. But I do think there is something specifically about the class where I get the impression that she needed to manufacture a like working class in to this narrative, which is Fern, to allow her to view everything because she doesn't really, even if she can have a similar appreciation of the la- appreciation of the landscape, appreciation of various aspects of these people's lives, it doesn't seem like she's speaking the exact same language in terms of what the day to day looks like, and which is kind of interesting. Because she does focus on the work, she does focus on some of these details that it's it's almost um, showcasing what these lives are to people, other Americans who they're completely foreign to these people, right? Like even honestly, people like us, right? It's we've never worked in Amazon factories, we haven't worked on farms, we haven't drifted from town to town and picked up mm-hmm. just random work. But comparing that to other American filmmakers, who I would say are working in the post-Malik tradition, but also looking at the kind of deindustrialization of America and somebody like David Gordon Green in George Washington, where his viewpoint of that is actually people in the ruins. He, because he's coming from a working class life, because he grew up in these communities that he's documenting, he's not actually out to explain this world to people. He's instead going to kind of um, explore the milieu of it, which is why his characters are often kind of just traipsing over junk heaps and you know wandering and there's so much and malik has a bit of that especially in movies like to the wander and stuff too where there's just a lot of wandering within these landscapes and there's almost a soul-searching emptiness which comes with the deindustrialization but this doesn't seem to have the emptiness are you saying aaron that you think the post-recession setting the deindustrialization is more of a, a narrative device than a key focus. I mean, Anders used the language, um, it's obliquely there, and I think that might be accurate in the sense of, you know, it's it's foregrounded at the very beginning in the title cards um, when it tells us the situation, but gradually its emphasis on that recedes mm-hmm. as it becomes more interested in this nomadism. So, Aaron, do you see that more as a device, or do you see that as part of the, the overall anthropological interest? The second, I think. I think she is genuinely interested in this. I just don't think it's not a it's a matter of a person investigating something that is foreign to themselves, as opposed to somebody revealing elements of the thing that is Mm -hmm. like natural to them. Right. So the film goes out of its way, not in an expository sense, but in a visual sense of um, introducing these rhythms of working class life, of vagrant life in a way, assuming that the viewer is unfamiliar with it which is more anthropological. It's explaining, it is not assuming a commonality between the viewer and the experience and working from there out. Yeah, or maybe even ethnographic, right? Like in the sense of it's, it's documenting yeah. and showing yeah. the work in these things. I guess my, my thought is that I don't, 
I, I still don't entirely know what the film is saying about the larger social questions. And I do find that the film is more comfortable with the personal dimension. And so I'm not saying that it's just a device to sort of have firm be working class leaving this factory town, but I'm still not sure. I think maybe just because I can't get a grip on the themes and how they, they connect together, but I'm not 100% that, you know, that stuff makes as much sense as the, the nomadism side in Fern's journey. If I can build on to a connection that both of you are between two things that you said, I think you're, you're both very right. And I think the, I always bemoan the kind of criticism that wants to talk about the film that we don't have rather than the film that we have. But I think I can, mm-hmm. we can critique a formal choice that a director makes. And the choice to have the character of Fern played by a major Oscar winning actress does to me distract from the overall story. And I wonder if it is a bit of the disc comfort or the it's trying i think narratively it was trying to be an in but what it does is this like fern even though she's working class we discover from her sister and other and other people in her life is not actually the same as you know linda may and she chose empire she chose it she chose to go with her husband there she also chooses Mm -hmm. not to go live with her sister which is a legitimate choice but she chooses that and those other people don't have that choice Right? Yeah, you get definitely the sense a lot of these people. And we're missing this. The subtitle of the book is Nomad Land, Surviving America in the 21st Century. And I don't necessarily get the feel that this is a movie about people just barely surviving, even though some of them obviously mm. are. Do you know what I mean? Well, now I'm starting to get the sense that there's maybe a connection between is does nomadism become the way you survive not it's the the precarious economy where where you're picking up jobs here and there and then that makes it like i don't know people are creating a sense of meaning out of that precariousness mm-hmm. i think so because i think bob wells would say that like but he yeah. also uses the term like he is giving people quote lifeboats right like he recognizes it even okay. though he okay. himself is yeah. trying to affirm his that he's like no oh, i love this lifestyle and i recommend it to everyone and you're a slave to the dollar if you do this and that yeah. right see but i think that i think you just in you guys talking about this, we have identified Anton, like you bring up the, the searchers reference and Anders, you're talking about the idea of choice and that she chose empire. She chose the small town in Nevada because Zhao is a Chinese filmmaker looking on America. It's a, it's a adopted culture. It's not her inherent. It's not the culture that she grew up with as a child and doesn't primarily identify with. I think there's a romanticization of this idea of the West, of the Wild West, and putting this onto a Mm. a contemporary situation, right? Where it's like, even though she's dealing with the real, even though she's working in the the ruins of post-industrial America, even though she's dealing with lots of real people, she still has to create a figure who is the cowboy, the frontier person. And in The yeah. Rider, she had an actual cowboy. Mm-hmm. She had Brady. But in this, she has to create the cowboy who can live out the idea that they have to push to the frontier, they have to push to the frontier, when in actuality, people like Swanky or Linda May might not actually be people. There is no mm-hmm. frontier. The frontier is gone. These people are merely living in the ruins of what was the okay, frontier but, 150 but here's, years ago. But here's the thing. You get... Now I'm starting to think maybe it's also a comment on the Western because the cowboy was a precarious job that we have romanticized and turned into this this ideal. But, yeah. right, it's gig work. You show up at a ranch, you're driving mm-hmm. cows yep. for a few months, <laughs> then you're done. Yeah, maybe we're not giving her yeah. enough credit on, then here. But I, I will say that, Anton, exactly what you're saying, it kind of leads back to one of my first comments, which is this 
being viewed as the kind of the Malikian film that it, it has this romanticism in the visuals with these constant, you know, backlit of gorgeous sunsets and the roaming camera behind the character. It's really recreating the way that Emmanuel Lubezki films Terrence Malick's movies where the camera's always moving, but, but it's at that kind of hip level behind where the figure is almost a silhouette and you're moving with them into these beautiful landscapes. It really is playing on old um, American iconography and Western iconography. And I think even though, it, I think there probably is a commentary here, I think it's maybe that in the narrative itself, the film seems to rely a little too much on simplifications or conventions. And it does, it seems to buy into the romanticization as much as it may interrogate. Yeah, I think that's fair. And I, I guess, so I guess what I'm saying, it's hard. I feel like a grouch bringing up criticism of the film because, because I think it's, it is in many ways a beautiful film. I like the performances. I always find David Strathairn really like enjoyable. I point out it's actually apparently it's actually his son who plays his son. He's also the like lead guitarist or singer for the band <laughs> Dawes, by the way. Uh, um, but interesting. I kind of wanted the film to be not. It doesn't have to be angry, but there was no very few moments in which I got a sense of uh, apart from a few moments of Ferns anger about losing her husband and grief and loss there Zhao didn't like let some of the other characters have that any of those moments and i don't know if that was because they didn't yeah. want to be on camera saying that but like i just wanted a little bit of like pushback against like like allow them to be like i had this and then like i was cast out and, and yeah i found meaning in this but i mean this is very clearly a film that's interested in deindustrialization in American precarious work, working class, but it is not a populist movie. It is not reacting with um, anger at the situation. Instead, it's actually taking this more romantic interest in how does the individual navigate this precarious state and perhaps things like nomadism become the way that you form meaning. My other comment, just to draw back to some of the things you guys said before, I will say I kind of maybe find aspects of the film a little bit too, um, I don't know if it's, some of what you're describing is a little self-congratulatory um, on the, the on the film's part, not you guys, uh, on the film's part in that, <laughs> like, I watched this movie without knowing the production context. So I didn't know that these were all real people. Mm -hmm. And so that had no bearing on my viewing of the film. And so mm -hmm. uh, maybe I was more influenced by seeing this as being like a Francis McDormand film. And so that's why I leaned more into this idea of like, oh, this is sort of like, um, you know, she's one of our great dramatic actresses. And yeah. then she's getting this performance of her focused mostly on her face, on her living alone. And it did remind me of Wilde and Reese Witherspoon's go at that. And that like, I didn't know this that the film was shot this way, you know, with the people. And so I was less, you know, I didn't know it was there like to comment on. <laughs> we have to give the film credit in the fact that not only because of all the Oscar noms it's getting and the fact that it will, I think, probably win Best Picture, but also the fact that it's working really well for both normal audiences and, hmm. like, critics. That's good to hear. That the film is clearly, like... It has worked, and I don't think everybody needs the yeah. context to get it. I think comparing to something like The Rider, where I went in completely blind off of recommendation from Joel Mayward when he was visiting Toronto, and I went in and I was blown away, and I was investigating after I'm like, is this real or not? Is this a documentary or not? And the tension because of me not knowing the context in the film, and because none of the faces were familiar to me, it was like exhilarating. Yeah. Of like, what am I discovering right now? And with this, with Francis McDormand, you don't get that. And, but if but if film is right, right, there's always the production circumstances. And Francis McDormand, like, they need her for this movie because this brings people to see this movie. You know, people will want to see this movie who would, would have no interest if she wasn't in it. 
the writer got no Oscar noms and this got a bunch. I do think the, the film works, though, for a lot of the audience, uh, especially the American audience, because for all the things we might quibble about it, I think it is in tune with Americans' sense of themselves. Like I've, all the American critics seem to really love this film even more than other critics because Josh Larson from Film Spotting said it's a you know portrait of the indomitable American spirit and like there's this mm-hmm. really a part there is this American sense of like of self reliance of you know um, and so I think the film does work in far as Zhao captures some aspect of American culture that's accurate in that sense. Yeah, I I wouldn't say the film is untrue, even in its even if it's fabricated moments. I think that um, my inclination as a viewer is to want more of a resolution between it's kind of exactly pitched in the middle between individual and cultural, and I kind of want a film to make up its mind because if it doesn't make up its mind, it's not able to achieve something more than documentation or recitation. Maybe I can make up my mind. Well, that's no, that's totally fine. I just think that like. It is presenting American culture back to Americans in a largely successful way, but it's not, I think, getting at some of these complexities that we're more drawn to, mm-hmm. even if the formal presentation and the performances and the actual film experience is very pleasant and beautiful. Yeah, that sounds about right. And I'll say that the film's presenting America back to America in a largely fair way, and just as a point of comparison, um, I'm thinking of Frances McDormand, one of her recent successes, Three, Billi- Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, a film which I really detest. Oh, I hate in that In which film. I think it has nothing but contempt for the rural and working class Americans. Where this is a film that which, which seeks to um, represent. And if we talk about you know issues of politics and representation on film, I want to give this film credit for showing me a segment of America, which we just don't get on film. We've talked about whether it's um, images of working manual labor or kind of shit jobs. And, you know, um, but also just, you know, I didn't really know about this nomadism and that much. And it was interesting to sort of see what this world's like, um, that there's something to how the people build things together. Um, so I appreciate the film for its, its attempt to be fair, um, its honesty, and for... You know, it's a film that I want to say it, it probably works better than I sound, like, or than I sound like. You know, um, and I want to give it some. I do want to give it credit, and I think overall it's actually a, quite a good film. Um, but I'm still trying to solve some of his thematics in my mind. And I feel like I might be being a little bit unfair to it because I was so effusive about the rider that I can't. I want it to meet that bar because I know yeah. Zhao has met that bar before. I know she's gotten beyond the purely ethnographic to the genuinely compelling drama. Um, but I think everything you say, Anton, is, is true, is that the film is successful in its demographics. It, it's successful in demonstrating a segment of American life back to Americans who might not be so familiar with it. But at the same time, it does actually speak to this moment of precarity of people who normally are very comfortable having to think about the fact that things can be swept under their feet or the things under their feet can be swept away at any given moment. So that a film like this being presented in the COVID year actually hits home, I think, a lot harder for a lot of people, especially Mm -hmm. Americans who want to unify around this idea of of American solidarity, all Americans being it together because everybody's experienced it. It might not be true in actuality, it's been demonstrated time and time again 
in you know who's affected by what whether it's economic or the virus mm -hmm. but i do think the general sentiments are powerful and do make a film like this coming out at this time register very strongly for a lot of people and its portrait of of resilience in isolation too also plays really strongly i think we're kind of wrapping up here but just to go back to one thing that we'd brought up earlier and i don't think we really dug into it's the idea of this is anthropological cinema, but from a non-American. And I maybe it's cheap comparing it to another Chinese filmmaker, but because Zhezhenka is like the par excellence anthropological filmmaker that exists right now, I think it's necessary to look at this film as being a narrative set in a largely real presentation of the recent past and using the recent past to examine the present. Compare that to something like A Touch of Sin or Mountains Made to Part or... Um, Ash is Purest White, those kind of films which are doing the same thing, but they're examining their own culture, right? It's There's mm -hmm. no kind of outside in, it's inside back. Yeah, or even Joe's <laughs> earlier film, uh, Still Life, which is maybe, maybe the best of his that I've seen, which just chronicles like the massive changes that the Three Gorges Dam wrought on a whole area of China, right? There's something, though, that like those other films that you mentioned uh, by Jia that like you know touch of sin has that anger though right like oh yeah it, it's literally about violence coming out of this precarity you get the sense like jia Zhenka is like you know totally a chinese filmmaker and he loves his country and he loves his people but there but he has that maybe because he's from there he feels comfortable making those uh you know critiques of the culture more broadly like they're not necessarily like anti you know ccp mm -hmm. but specifically against like this is these are the bad things that have happened, but also some of the good things. So maybe it's actually going back into a more a more idea of this film as representation is that Zhao allows the f individuals in the film to tell their own stories, but she does not claim to tell their story or put words in their mouth or speak to anger that they will not bring to the surface. And I think maybe that's why Fern is not a person in the film who... Um, verbalizes her anger so much she doesn't rage against the system she kind of internalizes it and goes out into the the aloneness and and you know subliminates it in the landscape and other things and so maybe that's that's a sense of she didn't want to speak for the people that the film is about even though she creates a proxy to speak through and I th and I think it relates to um, like we're describing sort of this anthropological sense in the film the you know what you might call an ethnographic um, view on things, and what I mean by that is that the film's in, so both it's interested in Fern and interested in um, the people she encounters, not only in in ways that advance the story. So it's not classical Hollywood storytelling where right you only show something that is is telling the story is necessary information. Here we're gaining attention to details which maybe aren't important in a narrative sense, but they they flesh things out and it's interested in that. Right. Like you start to see a little bit of like, what does it look like in an Amazon factory? Or how do would you build the interior of your van? Like this little nook, her appreciation for the nooks and crannies of her van comes <laughs> through. And but then even coming to Fern, um, it doesn't put she doesn't have like this rant, you know, because people don't rant when they're alone. Except in movies <laughs> that they are trying yeah. to convey something to an audience. Right. And so there's a truth to that, which I there appreciate. is. Yeah. There's like, you know, there's these moments where Fern goes out into nature and she almost is like bottling it in. It's meditative Chess. and it's mindfulness. Meditative. It's the opposite. Of, I just thought of an interesting, weird comparison was to the end of Andrew Bujelski's film Support the Girls, 
which is another film about working class Americans, but working in like a like a Hooters stand-in kind of restaurant in the American South. Okay, you're gonna have to flesh out this connection because so because it's a, it's <laughs> not a, okay. apparent to me. Yeah, so it's it's a film about working class Americans, uh, particularly women who work okay. in these crappy jobs. Yeah. Um, and you know treated badly, but and it's about uh, the manager, African American woman who's you know holding it all together uh, and her, in, in this her community she builds with her work her co-workers and stuff like that but the film ends I'm going to spoil it for you guys kind of it's not, not plot wise but they go up on the roof of the restaurant and they let out this like primal scream like because it's just been such a shitty day right mm. but that's as you point out that's something that maybe people, three people would do that together friends but yeah. would you do that alone I don't know but it does give support the girls this kind of like anger at these crappy service jobs and you know, precarious lives that you don't quite get in this film. Yeah, and that's something you do get in Wild, right? Like you get a lot of these like screams into yeah. nature all alone. And it, it you know, it's the thing that you, you add into the movie mostly to sell the trailer, but Or or a film like Into the Wild, which is all about anger and then it destroys the individual who's mm-hmm. trying to escape. <laughs> yeah. So Nomad Land is currently playing on Disney Plus in Canada and I think other international spots and in the States and in what parts of the of Canada where theaters are open, I think it is playing. So you can catch it at home or on demand or in the theater if you're lucky enough to have open theaters. I'm going to be 75 this year and I think I've lived a pretty good life. I've seen some really neat things, kayaking, all those places. And you know, like, like moose in the wild, a moose family on a river in Idaho and um, big white pelicans landing just six feet over my kayak on a lake in Colorado or uh, um, come around a bend uh, with a cliff and find hundreds and hundreds of swallow nests on the, on the wall of the cliff and the swallows fall, flying all around. and reflecting in the water so it looks like I'm flying with the swallows and they're under me and over me and all around me and the little babies are hatching out and eggshells are falling out of the nest and landing on the water and floating on the water these little white shells it's like well, it's just so awesome I felt like I'd, I'd done enough my life was complete if I died right right then that moment would be perfectly fine In the current, we open up the discussion to broader topics in film culture. Considering that we're talking about Nomadland and that the Oscars are set for Sunday, April 25th, I think it was natural It was natural to extend the conversation to the 2021 Oscar nominees and specifically the eight films up for Best Picture. So just to break things down so everybody's on the same page here, in addition to Nomadland, the other Best Picture noms are The Father by Florian Zeller, based on his play about a man struggling with dementia, starring Anthony Hopkins and Olivia Colman, Judas and the Black Messiah by Shaka King, a biopic about Fred Hampton and FBI informant Bill O'Neill, starring Daniel Kaluuya and Lakeith Stanfield, Mank by David Fincher, a biopic about the Oscar-winning screenwriter of Citizen Kane, Herman Mankiewicz, starring Gary Oldman, it's the film we talked about on episode one, Minari by Lee Isaac Chung, a drama about a Korean-American family in the 1980s that moves to Arkansas to start a farm, starring Steven Yeun. Promising Young Woman by Emerald Fennell, about a woman getting revenge on rapists and the men who assaulted her best friend, starring Carrie Mulligan. 
Sound of Metal by Darius Martyr, about a heavy metal drummer who loses his hearing and has to adjust to life as a deaf man, starring Riz Ahmed. And finally, The Trial of the Chicago 7 by Aaron Sorkin, about the infamous 1969 trial of left-wing activists in Chicago, including Abby Hoffman and Thomas Hayden, and that's starring Sasha Baron Cohen and Eddie Redmayne, among many other actors. So just off the top, have you guys seen all the noms? And if so, or if not, which is your favorite of them? So I've seen six of them. <clears throat> Nomadland, The Father, Judas and the Black Messiah, Mank, Minari, and Trial of the Chicago 7. I haven't caught up with Promising a Woman or Sound of Metal yet. I've also seen the same, the same films as Anders. Missing, Promising Young Woman, Sound of Metal. Uh, powered through a bunch of them these past few days. So they're all quite fresh in my mind. I would say probably... Probably The Father is my favorite. Maybe Minari. Nomad Land would be towards the top, but uh, but not, you know, not the top. All right. I, I'm basically the same as you. I, the Father surprised me because I hadn't really heard much about it until it was nominated. Um, and I thought it was, it was quite good. Um, I also really liked Minari. Uh, I liked it more than I even thought I would. I thought it in many ways was is like a great portrait of American life in a weird way. And yeah, you know, I think Judas and uh, Nomadland are in the top half of the others and I'd put Mank and then down I, I actively dislike Trial of Chicago Seven. But <laughs> a movie that wants you to stand up and cheer at the end, which literally had me like groaning and booing at the screen at home. Yeah, you I mean you cut into it in your review pretty hard. Um, I don't like, I don't hate it as much as you, but I still did not like it. I don't found it to it. be this kind of movie that like, it just feels overly slick, fake. I really can't stand the more I think about it, the opening of that film where it's like, we're going to this protest where we know like lots of people are horribly beaten, but they're trying to do it. Like it's really cool and fun. And they're like, everyone's getting in their cars and going. And you're like, just tonally that movie's sort of all over the place. You're like, you want me to like feel that this was like this horrible 1968, like, you know, like riot. But then at the same time, we're supposed to like laugh at every glib line. And whereas like Minari was like, I found it to be very um, authentic portrait of like family life. Um, I lived in Korea for a year. So I really appreciated just sort of seeing the, the cultural dynamics and, you know, the, in that setting in America too. Somebody pointed out something about Minari that I really liked as well is that the fact that they're Korean um, immigrants is really important to the plot, right? Like he's going to grow Korean vegetables on his farm in Arkansas and he's moved his family from California to Arkansas where there's not as big a Korean community and, and then the, the grandmothers come to live with them, I think from mm -hmm. Korea, right? Yep. Um, but... The film isn't like a lot of films of that type would be really concerned about like the racial discrimination that Koreans no doubt would face in Arkansas and things like that. But that's not what the film's about. The film's about like their family and like the particularities of their life. And ultimately, it doesn't matter what the other people in the town think of them. It's about the relationship between the husband, the wife, the son, and the grandma. And and also, I loved the portrait actually weirdly of Will Patton's character. Yeah, I, I... who's like. <laughs> Talk about a character, like it. a religious character who's like treated with dignity, even though he's totally an oddball and a weirdo. Um, like, anyway, it, just, it was just like a film, and it, the the, talk about dramatic tension, I found that film had it in spades. So, you guys talking so warmly about that film makes me think I may be a little too soft on it, or like, you know, I thought it was good. I thought many of these films were quite good. I saw all of them. Um, 
So you mean you're you're saying you're soft, meaning like you don't like it as much, or soft meaning? No, I I don't. I probably don't like it as much as you yeah. guys. But I I recognize that there is a warmth and gentleness to it, and an authenticity that actually does come through, even if I think the narrative um, elements that kind of culminate in the ending are quite obvious. I'll just leave it. Yeah, at it's that. a it's a. I'll just say it's melodrama, really. Well, it's yeah. It's basically every Sundance winner, winner, a good Sundance winner from the mid '90s on. So, but I will give the film credit for not like it doesn't push every single like Chekhov's gun it places out there, in the sense of like, you know, we don't go to the hospital for the boy, in his like heart for you know for the reasons we think like, it doesn't it doesn't do everything no. that you expect it's going to do, but it definitely has those things where it's like oh that's what like solves the family problem and. This generates conflict, but to me, it like it, it captures that aspect of like family life, where something sometimes it's like, yeah, it's conventional, <laughs> like all the all these people are fighting about it, but it was you know an authentic portrait of tensions in a marriage, of tensions with in laws. With um, but I really liked the father too. Like I was, did you, I know Aaron, I you liked, liked it quite a bit. Yeah. Is he? Well, I, is he from The Walking Dead? Is that what? Yeah, yeah. he played Glenn. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Glenn! Oh my goodness. Yes, that, so Stephen Yun's interesting because he is an American act, like American, or Korean American, obviously, but like grew up as an American and kind of had to relearn Korean when he started working with Bong Joon Ho in Okja. And then he was in Burning, oh. which he's fantastic. Burning's Burning. very good, yeah. And, and then in this film, it seems like he's, it's interesting, he went back to Korea to get the bona fides of working with these auteurs and then comes back to America and is like, okay, I'm going to make the movie The Bridges between American indie cinema and Korean art cinema. And it's like, and Lee Isaac Chun's a West Coast American filmmaker as well. But, uh, and I know this movie, Minari is based a lot on his semi-autobiographical elements of his own life. Mm, and his, specifically mm-hmm. his parents are kind of the characters in the film. Yeah, because he'd be about the same age as the boy in the, the um, film. Yeah. Yeah, no, you, you mentioned The Father, which I recently posted a review, and I The Father was a movie that I almost don't want to talk about so much, Yeah, and I almost, reg- I had to write a review because I wanted to praise it, but I also want people to watch it without reading or learning much about it, because it's a film that the context that is constantly shifting under your feet about dementia and the way it presents that is very well done and very effective on like a formal level. And the other, one other thing I'll say, which I don't really get into in my review so much, but it's a film that understands that like theatrical things don't need to be opened up to be made cinematic. So it kind of translates a lot of things that is used with lighting and, and stage exits on a play. And it reconfigures that through editing in a film very nicely without losing any of that effect. I haven't seen the play Yep. So I can't really say how effective the play, but I could imagine having been a person who's directed plays and directed films, I get the the bridge between the two. And it's the Hitchcock principle. He always said that right when he was adapting the plays, he's like, you don't want to open them up. Like, use, use those aspects of a play, the fact that it's like, you know, a limited setting to you know, to play into play to the strengths of like you know whether it's claustrophobia or this sense of confinement, and I I I'll just say that I thought that film was um, it was just like a pleasure to watch because it reminded me, partly because I went into it like knowing very little about it, but it was this kind of movie that I used to when theaters were open and I had a lot more time and it would just be like, you know, around Christmas and you just go see a bunch of the movies that were sort of had some buzz and 
one or two of them would really stand out and you'd be like, wow, that was just like fantastic. And it's been a while since I was sort of so surprised by like, oh, like here's a neat conceit and it really works like really well. Yeah. And I would say that The Father is the only movie of these eight nominees where I would say that the like formal presentation, the themes and the, the dramatic elements are all kind of like perfectly aligned. Like, I think we pointed out things that Nomadland does very well, but how there are elements that are, it's kind of working against itself. Our, our review of Mank in the first episode we did was very much about how there's the film divided against itself, can't make up its mind about Wells, can't make up its mind about Hollywood, and that there's interesting things there because you can see these dramatic tensions present in the story, but it doesn't really work it through. Judas and the Black Messiah is kind of similar to that, where it's got really fantastic performances. Like Daniel Kaluuya, Kaluuya, whenever he's talking, like, oh man, those scenes are so juicy. But then it seems to not trust the strength of those moments, and it has to give you all these scenes with him and his his girlfriend, and all these domestic things, and be like, yeah. well, we gotta care yeah. about Fred Hampton as a person. I'm like, no, no, no. Yeah. What makes him so fantastic is he's this great orator and, and this great leader. Yeah, that that Judas was. It's a it's a fine film, but it's not great because it doesn't tap into what the sense that you even get from the bits in the film how how Fred Hampton was and I think that also then it, it falls too often into some of the like almost like cliches of contemporary like prestige filmmaking like in terms of like the way even it sets and like mise-en-scene doesn't feel like it, it's too slick in some ways well even more generally I'd say it just suffers with a lot of the the uh, the content out there now of just like um, un, unrefined storytelling. Let's just put it that way. Like, it, uh, it's a movie that has, like, great moments and some great performances, but, like, it doesn't have a clear sense of, like, what's the specific story it's telling? Like, you know, within within this larger character study, but also, like, the larger socioeconomic stuff. So you get scenes where you're like, oh, that should have been cut. Um, this scene br- is going too long. This scene could breathe out more. It, it's, it, but, it, like, it's one of the... There's a lot of movies that, like this today where I just find where you get on just sort of the uh, the very narrative level they're not they're not tight structurally it's it's messy and I think that the the highs of that movie are very high and the lows are not like bad they're just kind of mediocre I think you can kind of get with the the nominees right where Lakeith Stanfield and Daniel Kaluuya are both in the supporting category and that kind of speaks to the film being divided against itself in the fact that it doesn't know whether it's Bill's story or Fred's story I personally. Again, we don't. I don't want to talk so much about what a movie should have been, but I personally would have thought that Bill O'Neill's the character you want to make it about because the Weasley traitor is probably more interesting on a personal level than the great orator on the larger level. Like, I don't really care about Fred Hampton's domestic life. I would care about him as the leader of the Black Panthers. I care about Bill O'Neill's domestic life because it must have tortured him, the fact that he betrayed him. <laughs> Um, so I just want to brief, like, you guys haven't seen Promising Young Woman and Sound of Metal. Do you want to comment on them? Yeah. Like, I'd like to know what your... So, your I, Sound of Metal, I saw, I honestly never thought this movie would be an Oscar nom. I think it's just I know, I read your review for TIFF, like, way back. It was, like, thought, two years ago, right? Yeah, in 2019, in the fall, I saw it. I just happened to be lucky enough to get a ticket to the, because of a friend, because he couldn't go, and he, he gave me the ticket. And I thought it was, like quite good specifically the sound design it was a movie because it's about Riz Ahmed's characters going deaf and so the film kind of similar to the father puts you in his actual like uh, sensory experience so like mm-hmm. the sound will give away in moments and and you'll hear things at that really tinny low level of just kind of hums and then they'll often use the sound design to really shatter those 
experiences. So there's like the great scene where he's having his hearing tested and you hear the doctor talking through the headphones being like kind of like a muddled like it's it's a bit muddled but you can hear him well and then it cuts to what he would actually sound like because the decibel levels are like blistering to get him to even hear it at all and it's like the sound like shakes the theater of the doctor's voice and you're like oh man this guy is done in terms of a narrative it's pretty pat like it it kind of has this it has some really nice moments when he goes to this home to learn to to sign and kind of incorporate into the deaf community and there's this veteran chicago stage actor paul racy who plays the kind of group leader of the home and there's really nice conversations with them but i think the ending that has kind of floored a lot of people with that movie i find kind of the movie's made up its mind of what is like the moral choice and what isn't and it just kind of does a straight line to what it thinks the moral ending is promising young woman is not an interesting movie (laughs) it's a very badly directed movie with a pretty muddled script that is working from, I think, like a core appeal, appealing idea, this like stylized um, rape revenge film, but set for like nowadays, specifically in light of Me Too, specifically in light of the internet and this kind of changing culture of what what we know about like assault. But it it it's ne- it's neither sleazy enough to really provoke the audience nor is it coherent enough to actually like confront what I think it's trying to indict. Do you guys have any thoughts about, I wanted to point out um, another round, which I thought was a great movie, but uh, Thomas Vinterberg getting the director nomination, um, but it's not appearing on, you know, the, the best picture list. And I was sort of struck by that because it's not the kind of movie that, um, would usually get that sort of director nomination without the best picture. Usually that's like a, either, uh, you know, a major director who they feel they owe a nod to, or one of those movies that has like very, um, very prominently stylish directorial aspects or elements. Well, I, I loved another round as well, but I think there might be a little bit there that, uh, you know, Vinterberg is a pretty well-regarded European auteur. So, this is an opportunity to, you know, recognize him. Since they're never going to recognize Lars von Trier, his uh, <laughs> compatriot from back, they, you know, founders of the Dogma movement back in the nineties. Was Vinterberg also one of the Dogma? Yeah, uh, he was Dogma. actually. In fact, Vinterberg might be the one who only the only guy who ever actually made a real Dogma. The movie. celebration, the ninety-seven house, yep. family fight film <laughs> that's actually shot in the proper Dogma rules. Yeah. Hmm. Also, Mads Mikkelsen could have totally got nominated for best actor too i i think i'm more upset that he's not nominated than the film not being in best picture just because i in recent years even though they expanded the uh the foreign like they expanded the best picture field and you know ideally that would allow for more room to have like a foreign film or or an animated film in there or or like genre fair it hasn't really worked that way and i feel like a movie has to be like parasite where it really like explodes at the box office for them to be Mm -hmm. like oh we have to take you seriously now but best director for some reason i think recent years they've kind of had that fifth spot as almost this little niche of like good for you we recognize you made a great film you should probably be in best picture but you're foreign so so what would be some of the other examples you're thinking well cold war from 2018 the pavel pavlikowski film the polish film he was nominated for Best Director. The film was oh. nominated for Best... Um, foreign Film. Foreign Film, but it wasn't nominated for Best Picture. Interesting. My hypothesis is that um, 
just given the state of our culture and sort of politics and stuff that like I feel like they don't like to nominate a film people don't like want to nominate a film to best picture where they're unsure about what the message is yeah. they only want to nominate films where they feel like it's promoting a message they want to promote so I feel like the fact that you know a lot there's a lot of discussion about what is the view of alcohol in another round um, in the fact that the movie's so nuanced that it's like you know alcohol pe- there's a reason people drink um it also has negative consequences but it's exploring that in a nuanced and not preachy and very not hollywood way um and i just feel like people are like you know it's not a message that it's not a clear message we can promote so we don't want to pick it for best picture in a way that like trial of chicago 7 it's like let's actually just make everything more simplistic so it can be a message we'll promote just jumping off trial of chicago 7 what do you guys think will actually win the big ones, the big awards? I feel like some of the acting nominees are kind of, or some of the acting categories are they're hard to predict, kind of, yeah. Like supporting ones, you are usually pretty tied up by this point. It's whoever's won every precursor award, but like best picture. Okay, okay, thinking? okay. A, cu- a couple of predictions all around. Let's the uh, who wants to go? Okay, I'll make a couple of predictions. I think Nomadland will win best picture. I'd be very shocked if it didn't at this point. Um, best actor. Ooh, I, you know, I think that it's, I wonder if they're going to give it to Chadwick Boseman as a posthumous. Uh, I haven't seen Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, but, you know, given his status in, in film in recent years, uh, that's, that's what I think. I, I could see Francis McDormand winning a third Oscar for this, to be honest, for Nomadland as well. Join mm-hmm. the, the three group. And for best director, do you think Zhao is going to win? I do. I think Chloe Zhao will win. Anton, what do you? So, what are your predictions? Um, hmm. Maybe I'll just I'll be the outlier. Like I'm so detached from the Oscar like buzz <laughs> anymore. But like I'll, I might say that maybe Chloe Chloe Zhao gets the director, and they give like Trial of Chicago Seven Best Picture. Maybe they'll split it this year. Um, give something more loud the oscar more touching on all the, the topics um i i would actually could very much see um france mcdormand winning again because i think i also think hollywood would like to place her among like some of the you know the great actors of all time um so i could i could see that happen i think a lot of these categories are kind of two horse races nomad land will like if I had to bet money, I would say Nomadland is going to win Best Picture, Best Director, Best Cinematography, maybe even Best Writing. And if it doesn't win Best Picture, I think it will be Trial of the Chicago Seven for the reasons you just said, Anton. The kind of going for the more popular mainstream Netflix fit, and Netflix has been pushing a huge amounts of money into into these uh, campaigns because they really want to get a Best Picture. Come, come on, they, Hollywood! We all we're all well, you have left. They thought they were going to get Roma a couple of years ago, right? And they didn't. Yeah. So, yeah. and that's the kind of thing. It No Man Land kind of reminds me of Roma in that sense, where the director, the people, be like, because it's so artsy, they feel like it's a it's a milestone win anyway. Um, for actor, I think Chadwick Boseman's going to win. It's I, too. It's too much ha- a fairy story. It's his last performance too. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> and he is really terrific in it. I think Anthony Hopkins is probably a bit better. Or not better, but like I just I think it's a performance that's even more striking. But he is really great in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. I think for actress, Carrie Mulligan is going to win for Promising Young Woman. 
I think it's just because the film is so built around her. I don't. Has she pre- won before? No. Mm. Okay. She, she's yeah. kind of been overlooked. And I could see Frances McDormand winning and being put into this royal class, but I feel like the buzz behind Promising Young Woman, the fact that it got Best Director and Best Picture nods, but I don't think it's going to win either, makes me think they're going to throw the the um, salutations behind her and then Emerald Fennell for original screenplay. Do you think Sasha Baron Cohen's going to win Supporting Actor? No. That, think- that, that you'll get the divide, the Judas and the Black? <sighs> I feel like every... I feel like everybody's going to pick Daniel Kaluuya over Lakeith Stanfield. Yeah. Like I, I feel like Daniel Kaluuya is just obviously the more showy performance in that movie. And so I don't know if there's going to be much of a split. I'm free. I need everybody to be there to me. I am a revolutionary. So yeah, I, I don't know if like if you're listening and that helps you at all in the Oscar pool. I'm not. I usually do pretty well in the Oscar predictions, but I I'm not claiming to be an expert. And this is a weird year, considering mm-hmm. that nobody was seeing these films in theaters. So it's but really you will hard probably to put out your uh, your yearly. Yeah, I'll put out a prediction, prediction. list that will come out after this episode. Um, or no, maybe right around the same time. Yeah, maybe they're around the same time. Maybe it'll come out the same day. So just want to say again, thanks for listening. If you like the podcast if you like the conversations let us know comment on our facebook or send us a twitter message or and and please rate it highly don't rate it if you're not going to rate it to five but <laughs> give us the good ratings but you and, can send us a message with your with your displeasure yeah yeah let Happy us know to read that <laughs> privately tell us what you don't like but publicly please praise us <laughs> <laughs> Um, no, but th- seriously, thanks for listening. Hopefully, uh, you got some stuff out of this, and I'll, we'll catch you on the next episode of Three Brothers Filmcast. Goodbye, Mr. Bond. I bid you farewell. <laughs>